Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 17, we read. Now, as he that is Jesus was going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good, but one that is God. You know, the commandments do not commit adultery. Do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. And he answered and said to him, teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, one thing you lack, go your way. Sell whatever you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come take up the cross and follow me. But he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. In Mark 10, we have seen a series of requests, a request for an interpretation about marriage, divorce and remarriage in verses 1 through 12, and we witnessed a request for a benediction or blessing for the children in verses 13 through 16. And now Mark relates another request, and this time it has to do with a question about eternal life in verses 17 through 22. Later, another request will be made by an ambitious mother for thrones for her two sons. In verses 32 through 45. And finally, there's going to be a request for illumination as a blind beggar seeks Jesus for sight and for light in verses 46 through 52. This particular passage finds outlines and events in Matthew, in Mark and Luke. In Matthew's gospel, the person who approaches Jesus is described as having great possessions in verses 19 and chapter 19, verse 22. And then and it includes the comment, assuredly, I say to you that it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven as well as in our own text in Matthew, chapter 19, verse 23. In Luke's gospel, in Luke 18, verse 18, he's described as a certain ruler. The New Testament paints a picture of someone who is rich and powerful, enthusiastic and moral and loved by Jesus. Sometimes people ask me about missing links and I'm. Almost certain that when they do, they typically are talking about evolution of how mud becomes men. But the Bible also has something to say about a missing link. As a matter of fact, the missing link is discovered in this passage of scripture. It's found in verse 21. One thing you lack. There was a Christian reporter named Stephanie Samuel in a column dated December 17th. She wrote for the the Christian Post, 
The majority of Protestants and evangelicals believe that good people and people of other religions can go to heaven, unquote. The reporter cites author David Campbell's book, quote, American Grace, How Religion Divides and Unites Us. In a survey of 3,000 Americans, that Americans, though devout, are very tolerant. Among those surveyed, most believed that good people, despite their religious affiliation, can go to heaven. 83% of evangelical Protestants agreed that good people of other religions go to heaven. 90% of black Protestants agreed that good people of other religions can go to heaven. And when prodded further, more than half, 54% of evangelical Protestants said yes, People of religions other than Christianity can go to heaven. 62% of black Protestants agreed with the statement. But is it true? Is it true? On what basis does a person avoid hell? On what person on what basis does a person go to heaven? How do we ask and answer the question that's here raised? As a matter of fact, it is the most important question. And in Mark chapter 10, verse 17, it says, Now as he, that is Jesus, was going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? I need you to note three things right off the bat. The first thing, number one, the young man's enthusiasm. He comes running. You have to understand something. In the first century, in Jewish culture and society, it wasn't like living in the front range of Denver. Particularly, it wasn't like Boulder, where everyone runs. Everyone jogs. As a matter of fact, you're cool, hip, and... Probably even healthy if you run. But in the Jewish culture, it was undignified for a Jewish man to run in public. And you are, can almost hear him gasping for breath in the opening verse. He's going down the road. He comes running. He kneels before him. And that's number two. The man's humility. Number one. Is his enthusiasm. Number two is his humility as he kneels before Jesus. And I'm going to suggest to you that this rich young ruler probably never kneeled before anybody in his whole life. Unless, of course, he met the king. Or unless he came in contact with the high priest. But this is a young man who doesn't kneel before anybody he's wealthy he perhaps employs scores of people this is a man who's used to being admired and he's used to being respected and he's used to being honored and now he kneels before a rabbi a rabbi who is known and hated by the religious establishment a man who is marked for death and number three the young man's request Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Does it get any better than this if you're a pastor or if you're an evangelist? Enthusiastic? 
wealthy, humble, has all the right questions. Forget everything. Just bow your head right now and repeat after me. Heavenly Father, I know I need a Savior. And ask me into your heart. Amen. Finally, someone who is smart, enthusiastic, humble. And did I say wealthy? Did I mention that? Someone who can finally support me in ministry. Where do I begin? Four spiritual laws. God loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life. Humans are sinful and separated from God and therefore cannot know and experience God's plan of salvation. Jesus is the only provision for humanity's sin. We must individually receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. Or or should I go with the Navigator's bridge to life and say that the Bible teaches that God loves all humans and wants to know them. But the God and humans are separated by sin. And this separation leads to sin and death and judgment. And there's a solution. Jesus dying on the cross. He's the bridge between God and man. Those who personally trust Jesus and receive Jesus can experience. Experience forgiveness in life, or do I go with Billy Graham Association and steps to peace with God? Step number one, God's plan, peace and life. Step number two, humanity's problems, sin and separation. Step three, remedy the cross. Step four, receive Christ. Or do I go down the Romans road? In Romans chapter 3, verse 23, for all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God, sin's penalty. In Romans 6, 23, that it's appointed once for a human being to die, but then judgments, God's all have sinned, all have fallen short. God's provision in Romans 5, 8, the person's response in Romans 10, 9, if I confess with my mouth and believe with my heart that Jesus is the Lord, you'll be saved. All of these methods are good. All have been used by God to bring thousands into the kingdom of God. But Jesus isn't interested in a false conversion. The difference between catching men and catching fish You catch fish that are alive and then they die, but you catch men and they are dead and then they are brought to life. So what indeed must a person do? Jesus was once asked, what must I do to do the work? That is to work the works of God, he asked in John chapter six, verse 28. And he answered, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent in John chapter six, verse 29. As a matter of fact, in John's gospel, in chapter 17, verse three, he answers the young man's question bluntly. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus defines eternal life, not so much in terms of living forever, but in loving forever and being loved forever. The rich young ruler has everything that money can buy. 
He already has wealth. He already has power. He already has position and prestige and admiration. He has a secure future. And I suspect everyone in the crowd and at least one of the disciples were thinking in their heart, I wish I was him. They would have gladly traded places with this man in a heartbeat. We might add even one more thing to his enthusiasm, to his humility. It's another thing to add to the resume. He calls Jesus good teacher. The expression implies a certain moral righteousness and even evident integrity. An observant Jew typically would not address a rabbi as good. Jesus doesn't refuse the title, but he'll use the man's inquiry as a test of his faith. And will the term of respect become a point of recognition? And you can imagine in verse 18 when Jesus says says to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one that is God. And everybody's heart sank. The disciples heart sank Jesus he's enthusiastic he's humble oh but did I did I mention that he's rich most modern evangelists would criticize Jesus's evangelistic technique why doesn't Jesus just simply say okay look bow your head believe in me and say the sinner's prayer but he doesn't He provokes yet another question. Why do you call me good? The implication being, do you understand the meaning of the word good? Do you understand who I am? Do you understand that moral perfection lies in only one single place? And that is in the person of God. And if Jesus himself says that no one is good except for God. What exactly is he saying? Do you remember that Jesus said to his own disciples in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the father except by me. If you had known me, you would have known my father and you do know my father. He basically says, and from henceforth, you know him and have seen him. Anyone, believer, unbeliever, make-believer, is Jesus making the claim that only God is good? Yes. Is Jesus good? The Bible's repeated testimony is the moral perfection of Jesus. The Bible says that he was tempted just like you and I in every single way, but he was found without sin and he was found without guilt. Another way of even asking the question is, you come to me as if I'm a regular human being. Are you sure? Is Jesus God? Is this rich young ruler ready to confess 
that he is a sinner and that Jesus is God. And with a single word, Jesus destroys all hopes of personal goodness as the basis of salvation, since no one is good. Except God. We might put it another way. If goodness is the basis of acceptance by God, how good do you have to be? How good exactly? You might say, well, you have to be better than Jeffrey Dahmer. Okay, so we're going to lay, that's where we're going to have the bar, right? Serial killer who cuts people's heads off and puts it in the refrigerator. Most people are willing to agree. Jeffrey Dahmer, he's a bad person. Adolf Hitler kills six million plus Jews. Bad person. You might even go up the scale a little bit and you go, well, what about a person like Mother Teresa? She devotes her life to the leper, to the poor, to the indigent, to the to the poorest, to the isolated, to the least, the last, the lost. She devotes her whole life for goodness. I'll typically ask them on a scale of one to ten. Ten being perfect. Jesus is perfect. Where would you put Jeffrey Dahmer? I'm only going to give him a one. He's barely human. How about Mother Teresa? Well, I'll give her an eight. You're exactly right. They both have the same thing in common. They both don't even get to be on the moral scale. If God's plan and God's point is moral perfection, who qualifies? And the answer, the right answer is no one. Martin Luther was right when he said a man cannot do good before he is made good. C.H. Spurgeon wrote, you will as surely be lost if you trust to your good works as if you had trusted your sin. The Old Testament testimony is that your even your righteousness is as filthy rags. Even the thing that you would say constitutes goodness becomes badness in the eyes of God. What if I'm a good person? What if I'm a respectable person? And in verse 19, it says, you know, the commandments, Jesus says, do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. And Jesus points the young man to the law. The law, in part, was given to awaken us to the fact that there were lawbreakers. You would never know it's wrong to walk on the grass unless you saw the sign that said, don't walk on the grass. The law produces in us an awareness and a conviction that we are sinners. And this young man is still laboring under the delusion that he could inherit the kingdom on some principle of doing. What must I do? What must I do? The law tells us what we must do. And so Jesus quotes five of the Ten Commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud are really part of the same commandment. Honor your father and your mother. In a sense, these commandments comprise and expand The commandment that you're to love your neighbor as yourself. 
the commandments he quotes deals with how we are to conduct ourselves among ourselves. And Jesus is going to put him to the test. Does the young man really love his neighbor as himself? And in a moment, Jesus is going to call upon this young man to prove his claim. Just like he calls upon each and every person who makes the claim, I am good. And he says, really? Are you good? Seeing that you simply have to break one commandment one time and it disqualifies you from heaven forever. In verse 20, it says, And he answered and said to him, Teacher or rabbi, all these things I have kept from my youth. By the way, how many people have been saved by observing the law? In Galatians chapter 3, verse 11, Paul writes, But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident for the just. Those who are justified shall live by faith, it says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 11. In verse 12, it says, Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall lie by them. And in verse 21 of the same chapter, Galatians 3, Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given us life truly righteous, would have come by the law, but not one single person has ever been justified because they kept the law. So how are we to think about the young man's answer? Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. There's three possible answers. He's telling the truth. He's lying. Is there another one that might come under the category of he's lying? He sincerely believes that he's kept these commandments. And he's just simply confused. That's a possibility. Let's just for a moment give him the benefit of the doubt. Let's just for the moment suggest That it is exactly possible that for the most part he was a good and a decent and a faithful man. The man's response is clear and concise and commendable. He's led an extraordinary life. There's no hint of conceit or pride in his response. His statement seems to be a matter of fact to the best of his ability. He has in fact honored and obeyed the commandments. He is enthusiastic. He is humble. He is moral. And look at the very next verse in verse 21. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him. I know that in a sort of a grand theological way, we know that Jesus loves everybody. Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world, red and yellow, black and white. They are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. But I'm going to suggest to you 
that Peter seems to remember and Mark seems to record this special insight. Jesus looking at him loved him. There's a genuine affection. And by the way, that affection seems to be extended just a few people in the New Testament. In the New Testament, John, the beloved, is called the beloved. He refers to himself as that (laughs) disciple whom Jesus loved. The Bible refers to Lazarus, one of his best friends, as a person that he loves. Enthusiastic, humble, moral. Did I mention that he's rich? And look what else. Jesus loves him. Doesn't that count for something? It says, however, one thing you lack... Go your way, sell whatever you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come take up the cross and follow me. Now, I want you to think this through. I really do want you to think this through. He is enthusiastic. He is humble. He is honorable. He is respectable. He is lovable. And I know what you're thinking. Well, Jesus, if you really loved him. Really loved him. Shouldn't this be enough? You know, we sometimes think that love is something other than a willingness to do what's right towards that person. And Jesus does love him. And Jesus wants to see him saved. I want you to just for a moment, I want you to place yourself in that man's Position. Imagine there you are. You are before Jesus. He, he says, look, one thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have, give it to the poor and come and you'll have treasure in heaven and come take up the cross and follow me. There's 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 just one thing. There's just one thing. You're invited on this this greatest adventure, but there's one thing. There's just one thing missing. Can you imagine the epic journey? Can There you are. There is the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus who's going to occupy the thoughts, intentions, and affections of people for thousands of generations. This is the Jesus who's going to go to a cross. He's going to die a criminal's death. He's going to come back to life. And you have the opportunity to be with him and talk with him and walk with him. And you can go on the most amazing and epic journey that has ever been made. Haven't you ever wanted to do something epic? You know what I want to do? I want to be in a cowboy movie. I want a horse and a hat and I want to ride that horse and I want to be in a cowboy movie. Don't you have stuff that you want to do before you die? But look what the ruler wouldn't do. Jesus tells the ruler actually to do five things associated with the five following words. Number one, sell. Number two, give. Number three, come. Number four, take. Number five, follow. Look look what Jesus says, sell. 
He, he doesn't say, sow into my ministry. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to reach into your wallet and I want, to, I want you to give me your best gift possible. He doesn't say that. He says, sell. He says, give to the poor. He doesn't say, give to the guy who already has two chariots, five castles, and a multi-million dollar prayer tower. That's not what he says. He says, give it to the poor. And look what else he says. Come to Jesus. Come to Christ. He doesn't say, come to my church. Come to my religion. Come to my way of thinking. Come to my philosophy. Come to my denomination. He doesn't even say that. He says, take up your cross. And every Jew in the first century is going to understand exactly what Jesus is saying. Because every single Jew who took up a cross in the morning was dead by the evening. Because there's only one thing that happens to a person who takes up their cross. They die and they don't have a future. But then he says, follow Jesus. And you and I have asked the question on more than one occasion. Where are you going? I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be isolated, tortured, beaten, killed. And I'm going to come back to life. The New Testament describes people who follow Jesus. In John 12, 26, Jesus said, follow me after you believe in him. We follow willingly as sheep, it says in John chapter 10, verse 27. Holy as servants in John chapter 12, verse 26. Patiently in affliction in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. Wholeheartedly as one who is saved, if you go to the end of the chapter in Mark chapter 10, verse 52. Promptly as a disciple, Luke 5 and 11. Constantly as one who is loved in John 21 20 becoming like Jesus according to Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 1 that's what it means to follow him the New Testament is a book that describes who we are to follow Jesus and who we are children servants sheep soldiers workers Cross bearers, worshipers, saved ones, friends who suffer, people who are loved and seized and sanctified. So does Jesus require that we go our own way, that we sell all our possessions, that we give it to the poor in order to obtain eternal life? But I'm going to suggest to you that even asking that question is throwing you off track because it's the wrong question. The real question you need to ask is, what is it that's hindering you from hearing from Jesus and obeying Jesus and following Jesus? What is it that you don't want to give up? And I'm going to suggest that for most people, it's their sin. And their future. Is it some earthly friend? Is it some material possession? Is it some future dream? It's better to separate from anyone or anything than be cut off from Jesus. 
who's the Lord of life and the Lord of glory and the source of life and the source of glory. And in order for you to have eternal life, if you really understand the meaning of the word eternal, it means without end. And you mean life. He has life in and of itself. It isn't just simply the act of existing forever and ever, but it's relationship and fellowship forever and ever and ever. No, there's only one way to be saved. We're saved by grace through faith and that not of yourself. It is the gift of God. We are saved by placing our trust and our confidence in Jesus Christ. It isn't you're saved by grace. And then you're kept by selling everything that you have. In order to be saved, you have to admit guilt and you have to understand that you're a sinner in need of a savior and that we've fallen short of his holy requirements. And thank God, thank God, it's easy to be saved because Jesus has done all the heavy lifting. The huge obstacle that stands in your way is your sin and Jesus has paid the price for your sin. It's easy to be saved, but make no mistake about it. It is not. I repeat, it is not easy to live as a Christian. As a matter of fact, it's impossible. Apart from God, apart from his grace, apart from his mercy, apart from his love, apart from his power, apart from the presence of the Holy Spirit. And the most frustrating thing that could ever, ever ever happen to a person is to fall into the trap of thinking if I just become the right person then I can become the right Christian if I just simply go to church if I just simply read my Bible if I just simply pray if I'm just simply better than the the worst person that I know then maybe there's hope for me But that's why you have to be saved. And that's why you have to be born again. There's a battle to be fought, it says in 1 Timothy 6.12, and you'll lose it if you're not saved. There's a trust to be kept in 2 Corinthians 5.18. There's a talent to invest in Matthew 25.14. There's an enemy to overcome in 1 Peter chapter 5. There's a watch to maintain, it says in Mark 13.37. There's a ministry to fulfill, it says in John 12.14. There's a prize that we look for and that we wait for, it says in Philippians 3.14. Ivor Powell writes, quote, many years ago, I heard Dr. Frank Borman, that very great author and preacher, say, if you possess something you cannot live without, give it away, unquote. Do you want physical wealth or spiritual wealth? Like all things, wealth can be measured in terms of sacrifice and price. But what are you willing to pay? Place yourself there. There you are. The adventure could begin. And each and every person at some time in their life assumes this position. You hear the invitation and explanation of Jesus. Jesus invites you. To love him. Because he loves you. He invites you to believe him. 
He, he invites you to trust him. He invites you. Even though you might already be humble, enthusiastic, moral, wealthy. But look what it says. But he was sad at this word. And he went away sorrowful. For he had great possessions. What happened to this young man? Did he obey Jesus? Did he sell his possessions, give the proceeds to the poor, return, take up his cross and follow Jesus? Believe it or not, I've read commentators who would argue that the text doesn't say he didn't do that. Others interpret his sorrow as a sign of 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 accepting the advice of Jesus. He's going to go out and do it. He's going to go out and do it reluctantly, but he is going to do it. Others that it's a sign that he's rejected his advice. The word sad, by the way, appears only here in the Greek New Testament and in one other place in Matthew chapter 16, verse 3, where it's translated. And in the morning it will be, and here's the word, foul weather. That's how it's translated in Matthew 16, 3. Today, for the sky is red and threatening hypocrites. You know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. The word is stignazo. It's a word that's used to describe gloom in the sky. Sometimes you've woken up. Have you ever woken up and you look out and you go, it's a little bit overcast today. Looks cloudy. Looks dark. It looks like Old Testament judgment clouds rather than those New Testament resurrection clouds. Vincent translates this to have a gloomy Lowering look. Other translators render it sad. The New American Standard, the NIV say, his face fell. We're left with the impression that he didn't sell his possessions. And by the way, selling your possessions isn't what results in eternal life. In the case of this young man, the refusal to sell his possessions was an admission to something far greater. That he didn't really love his neighbor as himself. He wanted it to be true. But it really wasn't true. Even Paul the Apostle, as Saul the Pharisee said, concerning the law, he was blameless. He really believed that. He said, until I read a passage of scripture that says, thou shalt not covet. And then he started thinking about the text and he realized that coveting meant wanting something that didn't belong to you. And it awakened inside of him the reality that he wanted things that did not belong to him. And when it awakened inside of him, he realized that he had broken the law and that he was not a law keeper, but that he was a law breaker. The young man had broken God's commandment. And therefore, he needed to be saved. Was he willing to dethrone wealth in order to enthrone Jesus? And unless a person crowns Jesus Lord of all, we have every reason to believe that he's not Lord at all. And look what the text says. 
But he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. There's probably three words in the Bible that aren't any more sad than those three words. He went away. Just like some of you. Enthusiastic. Humble, wanting, inquisitive, winsome, even lovable. There was probably one person there who was even more sad than him. And that's the Lord Jesus. Because in the end, the rich young ruler was really a sad slave to his possessions. Billy Graham said, there's nothing wrong with people possessing riches. The wrong comes when riches possess people. (laughs) Many of you know I collect coins. So I always struggle with the passage of scripture that says it's hard when That a love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And I go. But I just think coins are so interesting. I was reading the story of a shipwreck off the California coast. Where a freighter was taking gold and silver from San Francisco. And a storm came up and it began to rock the boat. And the boat began to break under the stress and the strain of the storm. And there was a man there and he had 200 pounds of gold. And he took the gold and he put it in a trunk and he, he strapped the trunk to himself. And when the ship broke apart, guess where he went? Yeah. Did he have the gold? Did the gold have him? What did the young man see? What did he see? He stopped kneeling just for a moment and he got up and he went away. What did he see in his future? A life without money? A life without possessions? Each and every person comes to that place in their life where they have to make a decision that they are going to follow Jesus. In a day of illusions and other conclusions upon their delusions, they base their conclusions. J. Wilbur Chapman remarked, quote, I learned from William Booth that the greatness of a man's power is in his measure of surrender. This young man was enthusiastic. He was humble. He was respectful. He was moral. He was loved by Jesus. But he was either unwilling or unable to surrender. How about you? At a cathedral in Lubeck, Germany, there is this inscription. It reads, you call me master and obey me not. You call me light and see me not. You call me way and walk me not. 
You call me life and desire me not. You call me wise and follow me not. You call me fair and love me not. You call me eternal and seek me not. You call me gracious and trust me not. Can you imagine the next time you stand before Jesus kneeling and Jesus repeats the words that you hope you never have to hear depart from me worker of iniquity I knew you not if you want to be rich Give. If you want to be poor, grab. If you want abundance, scatter. But what if you want eternal life? What if you really want eternal life? Since God is the source of eternal life, you have to go to him. And since the resurrected Jesus is the channel of life, you have to trust him. And since the Holy Spirit is the giver of life, you have to surrender and receive Him. And since faith is the path to life, you have to put your faith in Him. And since fruit is the evidence of this life, you must live your life for Him. And since eternity is the length of this life, did you really think that you could live it without Him? If we could merit our own salvation, then Jesus wouldn't have had to die. Believing Jesus died for your sins, that's history. But believing that Jesus died for you specifically, that's salvation. You know, no message to the unbeliever and no message to the make-believer and no message to even the believer has any real value unless it contains the three R's. Ruined by sin. Redeemed by Christ. Regenerated by the Holy Spirit. John Newton, the author of the amazing Grace song wrote, salvation is holy of grace, not only undeserved, but undesired until God is pleased to awaken within you the sense or the need of it. We sang it early, didn't we? Awaken. Wake up. Awaken soul. Awaken from your slumber. John Newton writes, And then we find everything prepared that our wants require or our wishes conceive. Yea, that he has done exceedingly beyond what we would either ask or think. Salvation is holy of the Lord and bears those signatures of infinite wisdom and power and goodness which distinguish all his works from the puny imitations of men. 
It is every way worthy of himself, a great, a free, a full, a sure salvation. It is great whether we consider the objects miserable, hell-deserving sinners, the end, the restoration of such alienated creatures to his image and favor to immortal life and happiness, or the means, the incarnation, the humiliation, the suffering, and the death of his beloved son. And now all of a sudden you begin to understand what Jesus is asking from this young man watch what happens from here on out watch where I go and watch what I do and watch what happens when I come back to life how can you obtain eternal life you have to be fully and forever connected To Jesus, this is why John the Apostle wrote, he who has the son has life. And he who does not have the son does not have life. You can be humble, enthusiastic, moral, and even lovable. But in the end... This is how you have eternal life. You have to trust Him. You have to walk away from your sin. And you have to embrace Him as Savior. And you will. Or you won't. You will leave full of joy. Or you will leave full of sorrow. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for that person. Whose heart is empty, Lord, I pray that you would fill it. For the person whose heart is dark, Lord, I pray that you would fill it with light. For the person whose heart is burdened by guilt, I pray that you would lift it. Lord, I pray that you would extend the invitation. Come. Follow. Lord, I pray that you would extend the invitation that they can walk away from their sin and they can walk straight into your arms and that they can begin an epic journey of a life without end. Lord, I pray that they would answer the simple, simple question Are you a sinner? If the answer is yes, Then answer the next question. Do you want your sins forgiven? And if the answer is yes. Lord, I pray. That you would come to them. That you would fill them with your Holy Spirit. That you would manifest your love. And empower them for the present. And for the future. That they would personally, individually, receive Jesus and receive life. In Jesus' name, amen.